Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Tony Masters. Now, Tony is a very, very interesting character. He's been in the design industry for a while, and he has a huge history in the jet set. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much more about that other than just saying a huge industry in the jet set. Um, And then he's got a lot of new ventures that he's working on as well. So I thought it'd be fascinating to dig into a bit of his past, a bit of what uh, he's doing now, and just the... I suppose the empathy of design and what it takes to be an empathetic designer. So Tony, welcome to Talk Design. How are you doing, man? Thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, I say I don't want to tell them too much. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag here. Um, but tell me, just for starters, what started this journey where you decided on design was going to be a career for you, as opposed to it could have been, I'm sure, many other things. Yeah, I was, actually, uh, when I was uh, in um, in school, actually in boarding school in England, um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And um, I actually went to an aptitude test. And uh, it was very interesting because... Those are the kind of things I avoided, but yeah, keep going. I know, but <laughs> it was actually... Um, I, it sort of took about four hours and you do lots of uh, answers to questions and they they do a lot of sort of analysis of it and it came out that I wanted to do 97% interior design. Really? <laughs> really. And so wow. I said, oh, that clicks, you know? <laughs> yeah, just like that. Just like that. So I wonder what that aptitude test had in it. It must have been sort of things like really high aesthetic and really high individuality yeah, I imagine uh, communication it was about drawing it was about communicating ideas it was about uh, creating yeah and that's what I enjoyed and Fantastic. So, so it really sort of like the graph went off the chart yeah. and, and so I said well that's what I've got to do so um, decision I, made <laughs> so I finished all my O levels and A levels actually um, I finished them a year early and I, I was too young to go to university. So I ended up doing a year in um, Sir John Cass College of Art in London, near the Tower of London. Wow. And I did a year of fine arts. So I did painting, I did sculptures, I did drawing, photography. And it was a great sort of experience about communicating. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it was a, and then I went to Kingston University, which at that time was a polytech, um, and I did a course in, in interior architecture, uh-huh. and uh, so I graduated from that, and um, I, I didn't want to work in England. I wanted to sort of explore working in Italy because at that time, Italy was sort of becoming the centre of design and around the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And so I won a scholarship to go to Italy and uh, I did a course, a postgraduate course in um, industrial design in yep. Florence. Nice. And, what an experience uh, that would be. 
Oh, it was just fantastic. Uh, I had this little apartment with which I uh, had with uh, some great Italian friends of mine, and I never spoke English, so I learned Italian really quickly. And up on the we were up on the fifth floor, but it actually actually had access to a roof terrace, which yeah. had three hundred and sixty degree views of Florence. Roofs of Florence. Wow. All the towers and the Duomo and the Campanile and all those things of Fiesole and all the hills around. And it was just magnificent. I remember my first time in Florence and um, going and sitting up on, you know, you know across the kind of um, the river piece there, where you sit up on that big hill or bank. Yeah. And looking back across Florence, and that would have been a similar experience, I imagine. Yeah. And, and sort of getting this not really a bird's eye view, but a really elevated view of it. And Florence, just, Florence is not actually a really big city. It's quite a small yeah. city and it's actually walkable. And yeah. I was living in the center uh, of town near the prison. And uh, I, I used to walk every day across Ponte Vecchio to the southern part of, of uh, um, Florence where the college was. And kind of like absorbing everything about Italian life and architecture and, you know, passing every day Palazzo Pitti and, and you really got a sense of being in the moment of history and, yeah. and, and also just learning the whole experience of what it's like to learn another language, absorb another culture uh, and really sort of kind of like have all that history that's available uh, around and also when you're when you're learning or being you know you're doing your study and you know art and sculpture and stuff your awareness would be you know tuned off the dial for what you're in um because in london you could do a similar thing not as walk around as easy but um it doesn't have the romance of florence or, or quite the, does have the age but not that it shows up the same um, yeah, so, it, but being so dialed in to your environment because yeah. of your training like, and everything else. Library, a library in your brain. Yeah, absolutely. And all those you know, they're sort of kind of magical and you, you, you draw on them. I enjoyed that. I mean, I was, because I'd been to university in England and there was so much more developed in sort of teaching and and giving you skills to do, uh, you know, to become an interior architect. Yeah. Um, when I went to uh, Italy, the, the course really wasn't sort of at that level. I really just did my own course for my scholarship and, and sort of passed with flying colours, but I wasn't really, <laughs> I was at a much higher level than the students that were there. Right. So, so then afterwards, I, I, I really wanted to work in Italy and I went to Milan of course. Yeah. and uh, where the center of design was. And I got a job with Studio Gaolenti and Gaolenti was one of the most uh, well-known uh, designers in, in, in um, Italy. Italy. Yeah. And it was a very small studio, only about six people. There was a Swiss guy, there was a Japanese guy, a couple of... Uh, uh, Italians and me. All, and all men? Like, were no, they all, no, it was men and, men and women. Yep. Different, different levels of experience. And, and so I really enjoyed that because you, 
I spent a lot of time with Guy and what really amazed me was this um, ability that she had was, uh, it was the surety of her design instincts. And I think that, and because I was a student, this was my first job, you know, everything was sort of new, mm. but I was sort of full of, you know, bright ideas and wanting to do this and do that. And, and I, I sort of learned from her that basically through time and through experience, you get much more uh, uh, confident about your ability and about what works, what doesn't work, and, and you sort of become a, a more educated designer. I think there's an interesting fact in that, eh? like um, I remember when I first ever did clothes design, everything was possible, um, yep. but everything wasn't possible when it really came to actually the, the physical making or the manufacturing. And so you become a better educated designer and you learn deeper rules that, than just the obvious. And you know, the yeah. same, same in designing houses, the same in you know, doing interiors, this uh, experience and being around um, other you know, ex more experienced people, the confidence and surety to know when when something will work best and you'll get your best outcome and that will give the client the best outcome as well and that's i suppose how we end up with sort of rules to how things get done um and then you kind of innovate within those rules or innovate within those boundaries i, I, I don't know i don't know whether it's rules because i've always been yeah. a rule breaker yeah me too man <laughs> <laughs> apparently i didn't know there were rules i was breaking i've just been a rule breaker <laughs> No, my, my philosophy has sort of always been, you know, like, okay, lots of people have designed millions of things around the world, but what about designing something that's never been done before? Yeah. And so you really sort of stretch your brain and you, that's, I've always sort of communicated that to the, my design team. It's not about copying someone else's work. It's about actually saying, well, what did that, what that, did that design say and what did it do? But how can we do it better? And yeah. how can we do it differently? So it's, yeah. it's about stretching your, uh, or taking clients on a journey they've never, never been before. I've so, got a good mate who's an architect who um, I was hanging out with the other week and he said, oh, I'm designing an abattoir. And he was kind of like, oh yeah, um, you know, this abattoir. And I said, wow, what an opportunity. And he kind of looked at me and I said, well, you know, pretty rugged environment and pretty um, kind of functional environment. But what what would be the abattoir of the future? What would what would it have to be like to nail, you know, all these new sort of thinking, new thinking, new ways of doing stuff? What would be something that would, if you had to, if they just kept rejecting it until you'd done the most innovative thought leading abattoir in the world, what would it be? He said, well, the client's never going to do that. I said, no, they're not, but let's brainstorm the thing to see what we what it could be. And um, it was just really interesting, you know, because you could just follow the dotted line or you can do what you just said. It's, there's, it does, every design's an opportunity to push through and break out of what the common thought is to get to 
something that's extraordinary. Um, yep. And that might just be in function. It might not even necessarily look fantastic. It might just be that it functions perfectly. And, and the blend of getting both together is when it becomes truly magical. Mm. Mm. So it's a fun game, designers. <laughs> um, especially when you approach from pushing like that. That that something, everything can be new every time. Um, in every project is a challenge, you know, you, 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 there are no boundaries. There's a boundary of, you know, time delivery and doing it. And budget, yeah. But, but within that, there's lots of ways that you can resolve a problem. And I think that that's the beauty of being a designer or an architect is that you've, your only limitation is your imagination. True. True. Yeah. And yeah, applying it. So true. It's a beautiful thought that um, making a note of that one because it's just a lovely a, a, a truism that people just skip over um, is is that, you know, it, our imagination is what's how far we're prepared to do it uh, or take it is you know, the limits of our imagination. We're very lucky because we 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 learn a craft about uh, making things um, happen from our imagination, and a lot of people just don't understand that, and that's why there's a lot of magic about what we do. Yeah, uh, and why people come to designers to say, "Well, can you build me my home, or can you build me my building, or can you yeah. build me my office?" Yeah. Uh, you know, because they have no idea what what's, what's what actually happens, and how you make it happen, and how you bring all those consultants together, and mm. how you actually uh, educate a builder to do exactly what you want. <laughs> yeah, and well, there's a challenge. Yeah, I think. I think one of the most fascinating things, and to this day it still blows me away, um, is you know you kind of sit there and with you've got your pen and your paper, and you've got your imagination, and you start with a, a a spark of an idea and a few lines, and then you know, and there's different things that are sort of informing your process from you know the the environment and obviously the client and you know those kinds of key things and budget will as well. But you start with this, with this this idea and a piece of paper and a pencil, and mm. you know, give it a year, and there's maybe longer, but just give it a year, and there's something that's standing there Absolutely. that um, that is physically going to be there for a long time, yeah, um, more than your lifetime, um, hopefully, and it came from this sort of like conversation and the spark of an idea and a piece of pen, a pencil and a piece of paper and taking all the elements and a lot of sort of analytical thought, but then a flow from your imagination and all of a sudden there's this thing. I used to think it with clothing, you know, you'd see a piece of fabric and you'd imagine who the wearer was going to be and, you know, in that, in that case, <laughs> within hours, you may have an amazing dress or, a, you know, an amazing swimsuit or something like that, um, yeah. that then you, you know, you go to the shops and you see hundreds of them in the shops and you go, well, it was just, yeah, I remember sitting there and thinking, oh yeah, what if I did that? And then 
<laughs> it becomes something. It fascinates me, that process, or just that spark of creation. So, so when I was in Italy, I, I, I kind of, um, you know, why it became the centre of design uh, was because mm. all the architects uh, that were in Italy basically had no work in terms of building new buildings because of such, you know, there was all the historical buildings of cities and you couldn't touch it. And so you were really sort of doing alterations and additions to existing fabric um, rather than building new buildings outside cities. So um, I think a lot of architects turned to design and, and uh, became product designers as if you like, um, furniture designers. Mm -hmm. And as their reputation grew, they were able to then do projects outside Italy where they became architects and yeah. built big buildings. Like uh, when I was working with, um, with Gail Lenti, you know, we were doing a lot of furniture design, we were doing a lot of product design, we were designing lights for Temadeo and and, and chairs for cartel and, and poltron and uh, frau and Maltani and Knoll. And then we were doing residential projects uh, for very high net worth individuals. Yeah. Uh, I remember doing a, uh, a villa on the Amalfi Coast for some... Uh, Awful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. Carry on. <laughs> and it was sort of like in this, it was a cave in the rock, and, and Guy wanted this huge sort of window, a semicircular window, it was like eight meters long and three meters high. And wow. And we had to have it made, especially in, in, uh, in France by Saint Gobain. And so they'd transport it down there, and then it had to be carried by hand down to this place. <laughs> Wow. And we broke it three times. You're kidding me. <laughs> no. <laughs> so in the end, we had to actually end up splitting it, yeah. which we didn't want to do because it was all about the experience of looking out over the sea and the rocks. And the, and, and it was a great pity to have this. <laughs> to, have, to have a couple of vertical lines in it. <laughs> but I guess it was practicality that overcame passion and design. And Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but like, again, just an experience like that sets you up to, um, A, think at that sort of scale and that um, possibility. And then, you know, practicality of, of delivery, really, it becomes, yeah. the, becomes the limitation. Um, and so then you, you, you morph into what it has to be. And yeah, so you end up with a couple of lines. Um, it's probably not that big a compromise when you're in a cave looking out. <laughs> so, again, just so, such an amazing thing. And, you know, like you say, one of the things that you often see that high net worth individuals will do is, is they'll ask for the impossible or they'll ask to push the boundary of what... No, they, they don't ask. It's, it's you that proposes something. And, and they go, fine. Yes, they're, right. Yeah, they accept it. You because they don't know. They don't know what's going to happen. They, they say, I want a place. I've got this space in a beautiful location. Create me something. You know, that's my house and my personal escape. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you come along and you say, I've got this vision. I really need to do this. And they and go, fine. Let's go <laughs> with that. Yeah. 
yeah well that's a beautiful thing that um they they trust you to create pieces of art um and yeah. that pieces of art that they're going to live in and it that's a a really i suppose a, a on a client's part a very high trust um and then b on their part they are looking for experiences now, design is all, all about client trust because at the end of the day, they first meet you, then they have to learn to trust you, and then they uh, say, look, here's this project, make it happen, you know, we've got this amount of money, and we've got this time frame, and resolve all our problems for us. Mm, so really, it is about trust, and it is a, you know, often I've had clients you know, once I was doing the headquarters for Coca-Cola and, and uh, in Sydney, and uh, they're a fabulous bunch of people and really sort of focused on their product. Yep. <laughs> um, but the president there, uh, he, he, he came to me, I had to do his office, and he said, look, I don't care what you do, but just make it fabulous. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> okay, then. So I said... <laughs> That's a great challenge, but I said, we've also got to make it fabulous for all your workers in the building. Yes. So we've got to balance everything. It's not all about you, but it's all about the whole organization working together. And he appreciated that comment because basically I understood that we were talking about a whole organization that had to work as one team. Yes, yes, and not, so not just one jewel in the crown. No, he got a fabulous office, of but everybody else got a fabulous office too. So yeah. it, 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 it really sort of uh, made the whole building work. Yeah, which is, I suppose, is the, um, when, you, when you're doing something for a, an organisation like that, and especially something with such a um, brand presence and a brand story, um, understanding that and getting the empathy of each level of that is like, critical to the outcomes that you know how how it will be i'm going to segue and um you're going to tell us about so uh before we started i said well, i think i'm going to sort of tell to people many of you will have experienced tony's design and um especially if you've traveled on an airplane um a lot of you will have experienced being in something that tony's designed over the years so Tony, I like to call it the jet set. Um, tell me about your history with designing for airlines um, and how it started and how it ended up um, or where it, where it is, you know, like just that journey and some of the most amazing projects that you've done with the jet set. And that would I, be really I, fabulous. I, uh, I started out in when I was in Sydney um, and we, we got an opportunity to design the United Airlines Lounge in Sydney. And I, I actually had to do a, a competition. I think there were two other firms for it. And um, I, I've been traveling a lot around the world and I'd sort of seen a lot of airline lounges and they were almost like bus shelters, especially in the US because they were trying to cram too many people in there and, and they really weren't giving an experience and they weren't providing any food. It was just like peanuts and a beer um, <laughs> paid for it. Uh, 
and and there was a sort of I understood that really, if you're going on a business class ticket and you're paying a premium, then you should expect something more. And so I, I came up with the philosophy of, of understanding if people wanted to pay a premium and they were getting a better service on the aircraft, they should also have a moment before they actually got on the flight in which you can then uh, give people, you can pamper people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by giving them experience which they've not seen before. And uh, they have a moment of sort of rest before having come through the trauma of getting to the airport, going yes. through immigration, the check-in, <laughs> they're all dramatic uh, yep. experiences which are actually quite confrontational. And you, you have an opportunity to sort of take someone, uh, put them in an environment which they're totally relaxed, they're totally comfortable, it's much better than their own yep. home. Yeah. And they feel like they're someone. Yeah. So I, I tried to sort of communicate that whole experience and we designed this lounge and we won the project. And we didn't hear about it for three months. <laughs> and I was oh. sort of ringing around all my friends and saying, well, you know, I know I've won this because I know I've, I've done the right job. And, uh, <laughs> and it just took forever because apparently all at that time, all the lounges around the world had to go to the president of United of Airlines. United. <laughs> and and uh, he had to approve them. So, right. uh, and... Um, so anyway, my, my one uh, got the one, tech. We, we built it and, and it was very complex. Um, and it, 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 I think it lasted like 25 years. Wow. Wow. So it got a long history <laughs> too. Usually a, a lounge sort of like lasts like five, 10 years and yes. then they go change it. Yeah. Well, you've got a high volume of traffic in it. So your surfaces wear and all those kind of things. Yeah. and. Um, and that, you want to be. One that's one of the things that is is particular to lounges is you really have to build it in a way that it's it's not there for one or two three people. It's there for thousands of people mm -hmm. every week, mm -hmm. and sometimes thousands of people every day. Yeah. And uh, if you uh, there's the Qantas domestic lounge. Um, in Sydney Airport, which is huge, and on Friday nights they were doing seven thousand people an hour. Wow, an hour! An hour. So you've got to really uh, build it so that it's bulletproof. Yeah, and but still elegant and still um, a brand statement. Yes. So, so really, you've got to sort of think about <coughs> and how you can make it. So it stands the test of time, not only from design perspective, but also uh, through maintenance. <laughs> and yeah. all the bathrooms work and all the showers work and all the bars work and they don't, you know, deteriorate quickly. When you take that, that thought of 7,000 people an hour, I wonder if a home would have 7,000 people in it ever in, no. in, in 10 years even, you know, like not even close. 
So after that first one, I I then did um, one in Melbourne, then we turned it into, uh, that was Landside, then they had an opportunity to go Airside, so then we did another one in Melbourne, um, and then we did one in Singapore, um, and uh, usually uh, United combined a sort of business class with a first class sort of mm -hmm. separate area, so there were two different sort of looks and fields and service. Uh, uh, and then we um, wanted to, and then we were invited to do the um, Hong Kong Lounge for the Star Alliance, which was the first Star Alliance Lounge in the world. Yeah, I remember that, that lounge. In airlines. So I had to do research on every airline uh, and, you know, what they were providing. And I said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to take everybody's service level and we're going to go, you know, three three levels up. Yeah, yeah. Whenever a person from any of those airlines comes to this lounge, they will see that there's a much better way of travelling and the Star Alliance is, is the way mm -hmm. to go because it was actually a, a brilliant concept because it actually uh, made airlines much more cost-effective by joining joining forces and using you know the fact that you could travel on one airline and then you could go on another and there was better connections and so they filled airlines uh, and if you fill an airline you make a profit if, so, you have yeah. an, if you have an aircraft that's traveling empty you're just losing money yeah bums on seats makes everything happen yeah. so so that was an interesting experience because um actually when i was designing that um uh, some architect in New York uh, had got the um, job of redesigning the brand for United. Okay. And so uh, this Hong Kong lounge fell under her banner. Mm -hmm. And so I had to be flown to New York <laughs> and I had to talk her out of giving, <laughs> doing that and, and getting us to do the project. And because she'd never done any lounges before it was quite a strange experience <coughs> i went yeah. into her office and we had this meeting and there were four uh juniors you know uh, designers standing in the corners all dressed in designer black <laughs> all <laughs> taking <laughs> and she was showing me you know what she was doing and and it was sort of it was almost like a retail look you know she was trying to brand the United look as a almost like a retail experience, like a retail, yeah, as opposed to a relaxing experience. Yes, and so I was trying to sort of educate her because I'd had so much experience by then in in sort of transforming that into a more emotional experience. And it didn't matter whether you had a, you know, you didn't have to do a sort of zany reception desk that was going to date in fire, you know. Yes. In one year. Yes. Yeah. But you had to do it much more sort of relaxing and 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 think about the, the customer experience. And so I was really trying to help her. And I spent an hour, you know, talking to her about this uh, concept of, you know, transitioning customers, focusing on the customer and the customer experience and, and using the service aspect as a way of pampering people mm. so so then um 
I, I showed her what we were doing and, and she obviously understood that this project was much more <laughs> on a different level to what she was thinking. Right. And, and I said, look, we're not designing this for United, we're designing this for Star Alliance and it's 10 airlines and they all have their input. And, and so you're doing a new, a new level of experience. So she immediately understood that it wasn't really her fault. Oh, okay. <laughs> experience. So she said, yes, go ahead and do it. Oh, how <laughs> it fantastic. I actually had to, I had a project, but I had to go and get it <laughs> from another designer. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. I suppose, so, I suppose whether, you know, like, the levels of experience having worked with different airlines, which is similar to working with, you know, different clients um, on, on, say, residential, um, where you are breaking down um, the, the the key elements. But in this case, you're having to break them down from, you know, 10 different, it'd be like 10 lots of clients trying to live in the same house. And um, and you're, you're, you're kind of pulling that together piece by piece no, 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 no. No, you say, look, uh, the level of experience that you're providing your customers is X and you're giving them all these services. And I did a sort of matrix chart of what everybody was doing. Right. Yeah. And I said, look, we're going to build you a, an experience which is much higher level than what you're providing your customers. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, they're not going to see your brand here. You're just part of a group. Of the group. Do, do those yeah. airlines, did they retain um, their own brand point um, lounges in different places or, or did everything yeah. fall under the Star Alliance? No, no. The major, the major hubs were always Star Alliance. Right. And the whole idea was that this Star Alliance would actually absorb all the other lounges. Yes. But they still... Uh, most airlines still retained for their domestic uh, operations yeah. a, a branded lounge. But and it was an interesting experience of sort of like talking to different airlines and, and trying to absorb or understand, you know, how they felt about their customers and what they were providing. Yeah. And, well, we're going to go another level up and and you'll have no problem with your customers and everybody in the end they really loved the whole whole experience and they loved the lounge and it was um it was a testing time for me uh because uh we i had a i was working with uh hassel they were doing the project management uh, on the on the on the project and they were designing all the united offices as the as part of the project so they I, I was doing the lounge and they were doing the offices gotcha um, and then they had a clerk of works on site who was sort of ha had experience on site but really didn't understand about lounges so the client asked me you know if i could sort of do a lot of the site work all right <laughs> so, so yeah doing six months of three days a week in hong kong and three days a week in Sydney. Yeah. And I was flying back at night. I was doing 12 hours a day on site. Mm -hmm. Then I was flying about, uh, at night, economy. And then I was doing 12 hours a day the next day in my office. And then I'd yeah. fly back on Sunday 
for another week. And, and it's not as if, like getting to the airport, it's not like today because there was no train, there was no road, it was an island and you had to go by ferry and then you had to go to a sort of security area and then it was a whole building site, massive building site. And then you got to the, the terminal and then I had to walk one and a half kilometers to where the lounge was. <laughs> so so like, that's the jet set, isn't it? <laughs> that's and, and when I, as and we had to we had to complete this for the 1997 you know handover yeah and yeah you know, that's why the client was really worried that we were going to not finish and and it was really quite an experience in in terms of you know working with uh, contractors that culturally and, as well yeah yeah I mean there was one story where <laughs> um, we designed all these. Um, uh, glass walls that were going to the toilet areas and so I arrive on site and all the panels are up and one panel's broken and I see that's not toughened glass and so I picked up a piece off the off the floor and there was a label on it so I just put it in my bag and 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 just went about my business and when the managing director of the building company came along I said can I just show you something and so I took him to this wall and I said look I want to make you understand something. This wall I specified in toughened glass, and this mm -hmm. is not toughened glass, and I picked out a piece out of my bag and I showed him. And I said, what you've got to understand is that thousands of people are gonna use this every day. And if somebody knocks this wall and shatters the glass and cuts their arm, yep. there's gonna be a line of lawyers from Chicago to Hong Kong. Yeah. First they're gonna to come to me then they're yep. going to say, well, you specified this. And then they're going to come to you and they're going to take you to the cleaners. Yeah, you won't have anywhere to hide. The Chinese go from yellow to green in five seconds because mm. <laughs> he understood the enormity mm. of what he did. Yeah. And then within 10 minutes, all the glass was gone. It was replaced with toughened glass. Yeah. And that's, again, that's that thing of um, understanding your side of the, the works. Um, and hey, if one hadn't been broken, could have been a much worse outcome. You wouldn't have never known, and um, that, that uh, would have you would have known when somebody you know lost an arm or you know yeah. cut themselves. So, thank goodness you found it along the way as well, which is I guess so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's both sides to it, and I'm sure at some point somebody you know would have thought they had a cost saving or a, a supply issue or something like that. Um, so tell me, what's your favourite um, airline lounge that, uh, you know, that stretched, well, maybe at Star Alliance, but that stretched your imagination to the furthest degree um, and something that... Well, every, every lounge is, is an experience. I, I enjoyed uh, working with, uh, uh, I mean, Qantas. Yeah. I didn't approach them, but they actually approached me after the Star Alliance lounge and because the marketing people sort of saw that you know what I'd done and 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 we started doing the uh, uh, Sydney international lounge there and then I uh, then got the job to do the Singapore lounge and because the Sydney one was delayed the Singapore lounge um, actually came out 
And then again, uh, you know, that was a British Airways Qantas joint venture. Right. And I had to do a competition with a British designer. Yeah. And, and, and it was in the location of the United Lounge that I designed in Singapore. So I knew the space backwards. So yes. when I did a, I did a, uh, a scheme for it and, and then the British designer did a, a scheme. And, and when I saw the scheme, I said, well, it's got some great ideas, but it's not going to fit. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just the fundamentals. Because they didn't understand the space. Yeah. And so then when Qantas went back to, to, uh, to British Airways and said, look, just forget that we'll we'll go with masters. We'll do it, and so we did a lounge that was just quite revolutionary. And um, one of the things that I I noticed that when you fly from uh, London to, to Australia, you you do like uh, six seven hours, uh, yeah. eight hours flight to Singapore, and then you've another ten hours flight to uh, to Sydney, to Sydney, and um, most first-class passengers want to sort of get out of that grind that you, <laughs> that you get on aircraft. Doesn't yeah, just get out of the environment. Doesn't matter what change you set at. Yeah. And it's just the way that, you know, aircraft is. So I, I, we came up with this concept of putting the showers almost like a Zen experience mm -hmm. right next to reception. And there are no sort of sort of locks on the doors there was just numbers and there was a receptionist there and she knew which ones were uh occupied being used motion detectors in the ceiling so we knew which one was occupied and no one came and knocked on the door um and so they would say go to number six so it's ready for you or go to number seven um and and this whole experience of sort of guiding someone so they could actually refresh themselves before they actually sat down and had a champagne or a health drink or, or some other food offerings that we had in the lounge. Um, and that really caught the imagination of people. And when we opened, there were, I was hearing these stories that many of these CEOs and multinationals were ringing up their friends and saying, you've got to go and see this lounge and have this experience because no one's ever done it before. Yeah. And, and they increased their, their, uh, their travel yeah, budget, people coming, wanted to travel in those airlines. Yes, and they, and they increased their, their passengers because <laughs> people were looking for this experience. Yeah. And so I think a lot of other airlines have copied that and and so that was one success that we which i enjoyed doing and and you know when you when you've um got the opportunity to sort of uh, manage your clients and get them to understand that it's all about the experience and you can say look you've got to put a certain amount of artwork in there and it's got to be artwork that is relevant it's Speaks not just hanging yeah. stuff on the wall but they're interesting things that jog people's imaginations and 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 sometimes you you can actually get custom-made pieces that are really yeah. uh, work with artists and they work with you and you integrate them into the interiors so um often i've i've sort of educated clients about 
putting a large amount of money right up front in the budget. And then, of course, when the client comes along and says, oh, we've got to cut the budget, and they, and they go, oh, let's cut the album. <laughs> say well what else have you got yeah and they go well, that's a silly thing and i say well, let, let's cut around everything that the customer doesn't see yeah and you know be clever about the design we'll meet the budget constraints but we'll still protect that experience well i suppose look this is a, a great again segue to you know with what you do with residential um these days and it's about customer experience um, and knowing where to, you know, where to cut the thing, where to, where to, what to leave and what to keep that maintains yep. budget, but also creates that depth of experience. Um, yep. And, and, you know, I imagine, well, you can tell me, but with a, the difference between say working in a, um, high-end residential home and the difference between doing that and working with a first-class lounge. Um, give us some insights on that. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, budgets are much smaller. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, they're only, they're only dealing with a few people as well. <laughs> yes, and, and, and they're small environments. And they, um, but it's, it's about getting the client to understand what's important um, and and what is their and guiding them so that they don't lose uh, that vision that you're trying to create um, and yes you can buy cheaper furniture and yes you can buy cheaper materials or you can build it in a certain way that actually makes it more cost effective Sure. Yeah. They're all ways that you can use. They're all tools that you can use to uh, still protect that vision and still deliver them a great experience and still uh, meet their aspirations. Yes. Yes. So it's not about just uh, saying, oh, well, you know, we'll delete this. It's no. saying, it's <laughs> understanding. Uh, why they have a constraint and or can you postpone something till later you know yep. like you can build something that's now but maybe a piece of furniture comes later yes yes and 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 because it's an add-on yes whereas uh something you have to build because you've got the builder on the site it's the structure to be done. Yep. that's the structural thing so you need to deal with that issue straight away but their overall vision is, uh, and, and this is where I feel a lot of people don't really understand is they, they have a budget in mind, but then they want too much for their budget. Oh, I, I have this thing where I totally get what you're saying. I think one of the things is, is that from a design perspective, we go, well, um, they've got, you know, they've, they've got their budget and then they're asking for so many things, like so many things. And as a designer, our job is, is to educate them because they don't have any idea how far it could go or how far it takes. You know, people turn up with the most beautiful pictures of other things that are their inspiration. And then they, they um, have an expectation of actually getting that. 
but they don't have the depth of budget to be able to get there. And then being able to pull the key elements out and explaining to them, you know, that this picture here, I often will do this one, this picture here, well, that's probably around $5,000 a square meter, um, which is, you know, half of what you're going to be spending. So mm. these items are the ones that are the pieces that are going to, not items, but these features are the ones that are costing the, the bigger piece of the money. And so if we can reduce the number of those, we've got a better chance of getting you this feel into, uh, into the structure. And it's, you know, people often sort of blame the client for not having the big enough budget for the dream that they have, but they don't, you know, in all truth, they don't know. They've got no, that's the job of a designer is, is to educate, like you say, like educating your clients to come along on a journey. But, it, yeah. but it's also, a, you know, uh, I used to have a person in our office who's very good at sort of budgeting and, and sort of preparing, you know, complete uh, budget overviews, almost like a, a QS. Yeah, so right. You can then sort of say, well, you know, you've got this much for furniture, this much for painting, yes. this much for sculpture, this much for all of these things that you really need. Yeah. And it's the bottom line, right? Yes. And so then you work backwards. Yes. If your budget is less, but then you 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 kind of show them what needs to what needs to go in a in a in a house. Yeah, there's no point in having amazing sculpture unless you can light it properly. Um, <laughs> you know, and so on, you know, and, and position it with enough space around it so that it's meaningful. Um, yep. you know, you don't want four sculptures sort of stacked in the corner unless you're looking for a look that's particularly like that. Yeah. Um, each piece of art has its space and has its moment and its viewing distance and it's yeah that that kind of piece where everything comes together and then all of a sudden it is its piece of art it stands in its glory yeah. Yeah. I mean like we, we, we've just done a huge project in Bahrain uh, which is called the Pearl and uh, that was really um, I, I did that with a uh, um, company in New York, Champelli Mode, and uh, we also uh, had uh, DWP doing the project management and uh, because they had a Bahrain office. So um, that was, if you like, a sort of three company uh, collaboration. Mm -hmm. And um, we really had to uh, get a QS involved, budget everything so that when the client uh, came back and said, no, this is too much. Uh, and, you know, it was multi-million dollar project, mm -hmm. um, but everything was itemized and everything, it, 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 if you show them that, then they say, well, we want to we get to this figure. Yes. So then you have to work backwards and yep. you say, well, you can't have this and you can't have that, but here's what you can have. And without and it, losing the essence of it. Yeah, and that was the essence of it. And, you know, we've, we've handed over the, to the client a, a, a beautiful project, which is going to sort of uh, be an example of Bahraini hospitality, mm -hmm. but it's uh, uh, a much higher level of experience than... Gulf Air did for their lounge. There were only two lounges in this whole terminal, one for all the other airlines and one for 
Gulf Air. And so the, the minister who was in charge of all this project, he was actually the chairman of Gulf Air and he was sort of playing two hats. Yeah, right. <laughs> he was having his his people sort of come to him and say, oh, you can't do that lounge better than ours because we're, you know, we're Gulf Air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, Gulf Air is a very small airline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well-funded. I'm used to dealing with, you know, huge airlines. Yeah. So I said, look, just forget about them. They're, they're, a, they're a small airline. They're a local airline. And they're important to Bahrain. But, you know, you're dealing with, you know, Emirates and you're dealing with Etihad and you're dealing with Lufthansa and British Airways and all these other major airlines. So you've got to be at a level, you know, they're used to and their customers. So what do you, with COVID, what do you see the future of lounges, how they morph from COVID? I mean, I've only flown, uh, you know, from the Sunshine Coast to Sydney a couple of times so far. Um, What do you see will happen with that the, the new order of um, health and wellness and people's um, personal space. What do you think is going to be the big change there when it comes to um, the airline industry and also just any mass transit or any mass um, place where people be, I like the thought of the transit part where, you know, what, what would be a couple of key things that you think is going to happen there? Well, first of all, there's almost, uh, I think, 10 airlines that are close to bankruptcy. Yes. Uh, including major airlines. You yes. Know, Etihad, uh, uh, Singapore Airlines, Lufthansa, um, uh, Qatar, um, South African Airways, Norwegian Airways, a whole lot of airlines that are really close to being going under. Yes. Uh, and... I think until the whole world is vaccinated, yeah, uh, which is seven billion people, mm-hmm. uh, including children, um, we're not going to overcome this uh, COVID because you know in Sydney we have one person who's infected thirty-one people in the space of a week. Yes, yes. Uh, so it, it's like, and now we're in lockdown. Yeah. Um, until all of that goes away, the airline travel business is, is going to be at a complete standstill. And so, when we're all vaccinated, and probably will be vaccinated, the whole world will have to be vaccinated and yearly, <laughs> you know, we'll have to have booster yes, vaccinations. Yes, yeah. And then I think that travel will become more free and uh, there will be more sort of globalization of travel. Um, but otherwise, I think that we're just going to have these trouble bubbles of, you know, maybe to Singapore or maybe to New Zealand or maybe to some, you know, the Fiji, you know, yeah. more, they go to Fiji now because they've got COVID. Yes. So, um, you know, we can't even travel in our own country. Mm. So, this whole experience of, of, of travel is, is really come to a standstill until we get a, a real handle on, on how we can deal with pandemics in the future. We've just got to change our...
it just froze. 55 minutes. Wonder if we're coming back, Tony. Hello, hello. <coughs> I'm not sure. But what happened there, Tony, we just both froze for a couple of minutes. You were yeah. just saying, um, let me just make another note there, 38. Um, you were just saying that until we have um, this full vaccination, that the airline you know, thing, we might be in bubbles and we, we travel backwards and forwards um, and, and within bubbles, but the, at full vaccination and maybe as you say, booster vaccination, then we'll see a change. Um, yes. And with that change that we'll see, do you think that um, our, we'll just be almost, not business as usual, but when I'm talking about the people um, as opposed to just the airlines and stuff, but the, the, the lounge experience, the transiting experience and the air, on aircraft experience, um, will it be, is there any sort of key things that you think that people will be looking for that they weren't looking for before? Other than a big vaccine stamp on everybody's forehead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I, I think, well, traveling in aircraft is all, you, you're still in the silver tube yeah. uh, and you're still crammed together because uh, they want to make a profit. Um, and, you know, before, you know, when they had, used to have smoking zones <laughs> on yes. aircraft, I mean, that was a complete farce because basically everybody was breathing the same air and everybody was... It is an aircraft you know, after smoking. all. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I think that uh, it's not, you know, traveling where you sort of have alternate seats and things like that, it's, it's just, it's not going to work because it's not profitable to run an aircraft, you know, At with a third half fault. empty aircraft. Mm -hmm. And the other thing yeah. is, is that it doesn't, so, it doesn't have zoned air conditioning or, you know, like you can't isolate one zone from the other. You can probably do things in the design of aircraft to better do that, but if we're both sitting in first class and you know I've got it and you don't, um, then we're still going to breathe the same air. It's no different from if we're sitting in the same room. Um, we can't just give ourselves individual air uh, unless unless we actually do individualize air intake, which would be you know with tanks or whatever. So you'd you'd actually assume putting on your mask right at the start, I imagine. But uh, then you can't breathe back into it. I guess we're going to have to wear masks all the time. And, you know, I mean, in America, they didn't stop their travel. No. And, and you know, everybody was traveling around. That's why they had so many states, you know, with huge COVID problems and so many mm -hmm. people died mm -hmm. because they didn't have, they didn't want to sort of shut down the whole uh, country. Yeah. Um, yeah. But basically, you know, we've been extremely lucky because with 25 million people, we've had less than a thousand deaths and our COVID experience has been minimal, really. Yes, I mean, um, it, we, we think that we've had a large impact, but we haven't compared to somewhere like Italy or no. somewhere like even England. Um, yeah, just- Or India, you know, with oh. 400,000 cases a day, you know, yeah. it's just madness. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, so 
I think the impact that we've had and, and people recognize, you know, Australia and New Zealand are, are almost lucky countries. Uh, we are. Because we've dealt with it in a certain way and we've managed to contain it uh, because the only really way is, is to do it in isolation, you know? Yes, close your, people close your borders. And, yep. and close your borders and, and, and that's really, mm. hopefully it's not the future, our future, but it, it, it will it will drive a lot of our future design uh, expertise because now you know when you're thinking about restaurants so you've got to have greater space between working areas and yes. um, and even lounges there'll be less it'll be less dense uh, so they'll have to spend more rent <laughs> yeah to have a, to have the same capacity um, so there will be lots of changes in the way that we design things mm. in everything that we do. Well, one of the things there is, is again, I suppose it becomes the opportunity. Um, and that opportunity is because people will still travel and the world will still have these, you know, we still want to go to restaurants and we still want these social experiences. Um, and so the opportunity exists for a new order of design thinking uh, yeah. to which is a in one sort of stage you go that's a very exciting times um, on the other side of it you go it's going to be a test of measure time as well um, so there's going to be a transition of yeah. uh, old to new and the people who take on the new earliest will be the ones who um, I suppose get the jump on the journey they'll yeah. they'll be the ones who really create the difference than how we interact as people in, in environments. It would be yep. fascinating. Um, if you had to um, give us a, a, a lounge experience that you would want to, or you know, maybe into someone's home, something that you've learned from your years of actually this sort of deep empathetic thinking of group and individual. So bringing it down to the individual and but but taking them from the group, what would be a couple of key things that you use in your process to um, discover that? And yeah, that how does that sort of part of it work for you and you know your firm? Um, well, I've, I've become very interested in in this whole of concept of passive houses. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're and, passive house certified, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I think that um, it's one thing creating experience in terms of how the house will feel, but you've also got to think about how the house functions. Um, and I think this concept of uh, building, using scientific data to actually uh, enhance the way we live and make it more cost effective because you can save up to 90% of your energy costs. Um, you can still have a beautiful home, but you live in a healthy environment because you get fresh air that's constant. You don't have to open the windows. Uh, it comes in automatically. It changes every three hours. It's filtered. Uh, you don't have uh, bushfire smoke. You don't have pollen. You don't have allergies. Uh, you don't have mold uh, and 
you actually live a healthier lifestyle in your home. Mm -hmm. And I and I think that it's just a matter of uh, designing and being clever about the way you build things yes. and educating our tradesmen to build better uh, so that, you know, they don't, you don't have a plumber that comes in and knocks a hole in the wall and just shoves a pipe through, but it's all sealed. Yes. Uh, and, and a lot more attention to detail. You end up with a client that even when they have a certified place of house, they live in a better building and they actually, their, their building is worth a lot more. Because if you say to something, say to somebody, this is a pacifier certified house, it's actually got more value to it. Yeah, so, right. Well, it but, certainly brings more value to somebody's life if they, um, if that environment is, you know, more steady like that. And absolutely. then, so it, it get value on both sides. It may have financial value as well as um, yeah, this, physical this value. Is, there's an existential, existential value in terms yes. of your health and your safety, and but there's also a, a return on investment because the additional costs that you might have to put in at the beginning, um, you know, you know, first, but that's negligible. You know, like you get your costs back in within 16 years of of, of saving of energy costs. Yeah. Um, or like a for a 200 square meter house. It may be like forty thousand dollars extra, and and that's like a coffee, a cup of coffee a day for thirty years. Yes, yes, a small it's, amount of money. Yeah, that actually gets you a better quality build. Well, I I would say that um, in most cases, if you were going to go for, um, you know, reducing your costs, then look at better design as in the size that you're using. So reduce your size footprint will always determine budget to some degree. Um, yeah. If you can reduce the size with better flow, better space management, um, and then spend that money on um, enhanced living, uh, you know, um, environment, then you're on such a win-win um, that you, yeah. Australian houses are some of the largest houses in the world. I know. As a, Australian and US <laughs> homes are known Europe, as the largest. Everything yeah. is tiny. Mm. You know, they've got no space. Mm. And, and it's that whole in Europe, it's 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 a whole different uh, philosophy because basically there there aren't a lot of uh, spaces in in historic towns and things yes. like that. So you you if you buy a property, you go and live there forever. Yes. You don't move. Yes, and, and that's where this 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 whole industry of furniture design, which is all about building in built-in furniture, because you 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 invest in your house that becomes your house for forty years, or it's passed on to your family. As opposed here, to a seven-year cycle here, we're, yeah. we're, we're nomads. You know, yes. everything is small. It's nothing's built in, or very little is built in, except for wardrobes. But basically, everything is sort of mobile furniture, and yeah. we, you know, decide to move. And and you know, I think I've changed houses seven times or something. Yes. So you're part of the problem, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess 
I guess your wealth increases. You know, you 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 buy a property, you 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 renovate yes. it, then you sell it, and then you you you, you keep you keep you going with that. More in debt again. <laughs> yes, yes, I think that's very much it. Well, Tony, that has been fascinating, man. I think there's so many bits in there um, that people can learn from, but also just such a fascinating journey through, you know, the jet set and then into Passive House. And also, you know, you, you start out there with um, spending a year in Florence. Um, what a gift in life to do that. And I love the fact that you're 97%, you know, you were 97%, there's only 3% that was fighting that you shouldn't do this thing. And so you've made it into a fabulous career and such a beautiful thing to be able to deliver a gift that you had to so many people. And, you know, you could have delivered it in residential to, you know, maybe a few thousand people over a lifetime, but you delivered it to millions of people um, yeah. as they pass through your design um, and not even realizing that uh, that's what they've done, you know. I think it uh, it would be a beautiful kind of thing to think that the number of people that your design has touched is phenomenal, like a phenomenal amount of people. Um, and there's so many learnings I, in that I, as well. I've been very lucky, and I've uh, you know worked with some wonderful people around the world, and uh, it's it's great to to uh how can i say achieve a challenge and meet the challenge and then pass it on it's like almost creating a child yeah uh, and 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 then you hand it to a client whether they're you know it's a home or whether it's a lounge uh, and then they they take care of it and it's they, like your family did when they sent you to boarding school <laughs> Quite <laughs> similar, but not the same. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much for your time. We'll post all your socials and um, how to thank get you. in touch with you and stuff like that uh, on the on the podcast. And I really, really appreciate you making the time. It was a fascinating chat, and looking okay. forward to uh, catching up sometime soon. All right, thank Thanks you so much, time. Tony. Cheers, man. Bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, let's say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? 
Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.